uh, a couple of years ago at the Leader Summer Summit for uh, the AOA volunteer meeting. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and one of the things that was really eye-opening to me about that in particular, and you probably don't remember this, but um, but a one of the one of our uh, one of the people there, I'll just broadly state that who I actually respect a lot, um, and in terms of intersectionality, probably stands. Um, with more privilege than I would have to say some of the things that he may have said to you. And I was, and I was surprised and I can't remember the entire conversation, but what I was surprised by was, uh, how immediately, uh, like he gave me a pass and I think he gave me a pass maybe because he knows me well, but, but he was pretty hard. I don't know if it was you in particular, but if it was women, do you recall that conversation? You may not. That's good if you don't. But 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 I think the the gist of the conversation was was I sort of women in the profession, and um, and then I think I think it was also related to scope in some degree. And um, but I have one or two people in my mind. Yeah. I've had a number of conversations with a number of people over the years that have stood out. So yeah. Well, no, that's that. So that's that was it was shocking to me because I. Um, you know, for whatever privilege I may have, uh, I, I guess I, I don't have the, uh, probably the pr privilege that I have would be that I don't have to think about like, um, you know, if, if I work hard in the profession and I work hard for the profession, then I don't know, I, I guess I've never had to worry, like, is somebody going to think I'm, I'm uh, not going to contribute in the, right? Or just uh, assume that I wouldn't contribute. And that was to me, I was like, Oh, whoa, like, like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, like she's just, she's got a Harvard <laughs> master of public health. Like she, she cares about the profession and she is moving toward it. I was like, and it, and it was really striking to me, I guess is my point. And I was like, I'm never going to have an Ivy league degree. I'm pretty sure you're not going to have an Ivy league degree. And, uh, so then, it, then, um, I guess my point is, is that that was really striking to me. And, um, and you said just now that, that you've had some conversations like that. Mm -hmm. Um, does it detract from, from your, uh, does it, does it ignite your fire or does it detract from your, your desire to kind of be involved? What, how does that impact you? Do you remember what comment they made? Like, well, I've had, cause I mean, I've had comments. It's very vague. I mean, in my mind, it's very vague. I was just, I recall that it was, I was shocking to me. I mean, right. a lot of the comments that I have, that people have made, not necessarily directed um, at me. And it wasn't. It was a generality. Yeah, it's not usually directed at me specifically, because most of the conversations that I'm engaged in, I mean, certainly, I mean, the person that we were talking to didn't necessarily know me, but we were at a an AOA volunteer meeting. Yes, so. yes. You could venture to guess that I was right. involved in the profession. Exactly. Um, so, you know, they probably shouldn't make a derogatory comment about, you know, female OD volu AOA volunteers. But, um, you know, a lot of the comments that I hear people make about female ODs is usually about um, the propensity for female ODs to go into the profession and then take a step back because they want to have babies. And then, you know, it's really just a part-time career choice. And I've heard those types of comments made more and more because um, one of the, 
projects that I'm working on that I was on a, a panel discussion for women in optometry uh, at this past academy. We haven't published the results yet, but we, um, a faculty member, a few faculty members at NECO and I, um, but one of my co-investigators, Dr. Stacy Lyons and I worked, we teamed up with Jobson um, to do a survey. <clears throat> they do sort of their yearly income survey. Um, and we wanted to look at um, income mm -hmm. and to see if there's a, a wage gap, a gender wage gap. And we hear that talked about a lot mm. and that's talked about in multiple professions. But when we look at our profession, you know, the data is not really great and it's all survey based. And, you know, even the survey that we did, it's, um, you know, it's people just sort of self-select into to doing it. But you have to start somewhere. But what we really wanted to do was trying to compare apples to apples. Yes. Take the aggregate data. Yes. It's so mixed and it doesn't tell the proper story. And I'm sure you know this. When you are looking at aggregate data, you're not comparing apples to apples. You're comparing different modes of practice, different years of experience, whether you're employed or an owner, um, different geographic distributions. And so the, the, the data is so muddled that you're not telling the appropriate story. And that bothers me as a researcher because it's not factual. And you know, I, I want to manipulate the data to tell a story that may be advantageous to one group of individuals that I happen to be a part of just because it's advantageous, but not true. Hello and welcome to Griswold Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Diane Russo uh, about public health. She has her master's in public health in addition to being an optometrist from Harvard. And uh, so we talked about public health. We talked about women in optometry. We talked about the wage gap within women in optometry. And then we talked about COVID. It was a, a really fun conversation for me. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends and support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, CooperVision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight One Day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by CooperVision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8 to 12 years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single-vision one-day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. What was her name? Beth. And she was on the so it was no, Rena. Rena, yes, Rena was in my in, was my year. Ah, okay, okay. And then Ray, yeah, that that makes sense. Yes, and okay. Beth was, uh, yeah, Beth was she secretary or vice president or I can't remember the year Something before. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, cool. Oh, it all blends together. Yeah. I know, I know, it does. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Um, so, did you guys get to do anything last night? Is Boston pretty much shut down or? Pretty much, you know, I, I worked a 12 hour day in clinic yesterday. And so that was the extent of my celebration, but I took off on Wednesday. My husband works for the state, so he had off. So I took off for the day. And so we just celebrated the day early. Yeah, nice. So then, um, so tell me about Boston and like, like uh, 
is it weird? Like, is it weird to, so they've been pretty much like New York where things have just been completely locked down for the last eight, nine months. More or less. Yeah. So I haven't spent, so I live outside Boston. I'm in Framingham. So I'm like without traffic, mm-hmm. um, like 20 to 25 minutes outside Boston. So it's just sort of strictly West. And um, so I really have only gone into Boston um, if I'm going to the college, cause I'm on faculty at NECO. So I, if I go there to teach to like, if I'm teaching a lab, cause that's pretty much the only thing we do in person nowadays, mm. I'll just go teach the lab and leave. And so that's pretty much the only time I go to the college nowadays. Um, or if I go to clinic, so I work at a community health center. So if I go, um, I'll go to the clinic, see patients and then leave. So that's pretty much the only time I've been to Boston with the exception of Sunday, my, husband's birthday we're born four days apart mm. uh so last sunday we went into boston um to celebrate and we went out to dinner we ate you know in the north end which is like their little italy outside for the first time since uh, i don't know last that's the first time you've been out yeah uh, well in boston okay okay well yeah i mean pretty much only like twice holy cow <laughs> we celebrated our anniversary in september um, which is sort of making us sound like we're shut-ins, but <laughs> yeah, you, you are. Yeah. <laughs> we leave the house, but we mostly just do like takeout and yeah. we'll eat in, but, um, we'll like go out to walk and stuff like that. But we pretty much like haven't gone out socially really. Um, but yeah, so we, we really haven't spent much time in, in Boston socially at all since this wow. all started. Wow. I really don't know very much of what it's like. I mean, people were out, but it was so nice that everyone was just mostly spending time outdoors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then, I mean, that's, you know, for us, uh, I think, I think it feels a little less unusual. You know, we've, I I talk to my patients about this a lot is that I'll have, um, you know, I come home and it was really great during, during April, May, June, and then it sort of kind of transitioned back in July. The really great part was that, you know, we were using, and we are now, you're just running around. Like I'm running kids from one place to the next. So I get home and we're eating dinner for 15 minutes and then we're going our separate ways, you know? And so it was really awesome to, you know, get home, have a cocktail, make a, a dinner, you know, every night was, you know, what, and I love to cook. So that was, that was awesome. And we just didn't have stuff to do, you know, we just hung out together. And then, you know, we've sort of let, and this, this happens, you know, you just kind of let everything come back in and that's what we've done. So for the most part, it shows me that I think like our family is pretty well socially distanced. I mean, you know, when I start thinking about like, what would I normally do? Like I'm pretty much doing the stuff I'd normally do. You know, we're, we're with our kids. The only weird stuff is like now that stuff is moving inside, then, you know, basketball games or masked up, you know? Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you know, I, I don't get off of work and then head to the bar. That's not what I, I do. It's fine. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. It's something I normally do. So it's not, it's not weird to not have that option. And when we go to restaurants, it's not that bad to stick on a mask when we're walking to a table. But mm-hmm. you guys can't even eat inside, can you? Um, you can. I think you can. We haven't. Um, we haven't eaten in a restaurant. Yeah. So- in March. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, yeah. that's so we we'll, can. We'll no, usually... I think people can, uh, but we haven't. We've chosen not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we, you know, the restaurants we go to are kind of um, smaller local restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, and the, you know, they're they're just a lot of room, you know. So we'll eat inside, but it's been so nice that we've also chosen to eat outside a lot, but. Mm-hmm. You know, so it just doesn't feel that weird to me. But when I think about like when I've traveled, like when it to Atlanta, I haven't been to like the coast uh, since all of the law happened. But you know, Atlanta was really weird. The feeling was really weird. That was back in August, and it was like um, of of uh, Hartford was shut down. Half of the you know airport was shut down. Um, I don't know. It was just weird. Does that feel like that to you, or is it becoming normal? Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't really, I haven't gone anywhere. Um, it feels- So you are shut in by, na- by nature. <laughs> You're really liking having to it Zoom It's sounding more and more like it. Yeah, I mean, we haven't gone- You guys any- have cats? No, we don't. We don't, have, we don't have pets. We don't have kids. We don't go anywhere. We don't do anything. Um, so- it's really made us sort of reassess like how we spend our time. We, we haven't traveled. That is the biggest, I think, um, difference. We travel usually a lot. We've had to cancel a lot of vacations. Mm. That is, I think, the biggest difference. We usually um, take several vacations a year. We travel out of the country um, usually quite a bit. Um, so we haven't been able to do that. And we usually see our families a lot. I think that's usually how we spend most of our time. My husband's family is in Massachusetts. My family's in Connecticut. Um, and so, you know, we've seen my husband's family, uh, but we usually um, visit outside. So we went um, on Wednesday, his parents have a puppy. So we went and like played with the puppy in the backyard. Mm-hmm. My family now it's a little bit more complicated because they're in Connecticut and now it's classified. It's no longer classified as a low risk state. So if I travel outside, if I travel to Connecticut, I either have to quarantine when I come back or get tested. So it's a little bit more complicated. Um, and especially now if I come to work, uh, it's, that's now going to get in the way of my ability to work. So now I really can't go see my family without complicating my ability to work. Hmm. Um, so it's a little bit more complicated. So we've had to FaceTime with my family a little bit more. So yeah, so traveling it gets uh, it has not been as easy. So because of that, we we haven't really gone anywhere. Wow. Are you doing anything to your like for us? One of the things we we started working on this summer was um, just kind of revamping our backyard, and mm-hmm. um, and so because that's kind of and, and I've talked to like a lot of the contractors that are working for us, and they they say that that it's like you know that's what everybody's doing all across the country. And I didn't even realize it. I was like, I wasn't even thinking, oh, well, we're going to do it because that's the place we can spend time with people. Yeah. But I, I think sort of naturally, it's like, same thing. We, we had trips canceled. I hardly ever travel anymore. And so it's like, well, we might as well just enjoy the stuff that we've got. Are you doing any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, we did stuff. We, um, we did stuff around the yard. My husband in the spring, like we did the whole front yard because our lawn was a mess. We did some landscaping. We redid a couple of the rooms in the house. He painted the kitchen. Um, but I feel as though we've exhausted those options. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and only so much you can starting, do. Right. And now we're starting to talk about how we need to discover new hobbies because the winter's rolling around. And so 
you know, some of those outdoor options are becoming more limited. Yeah, you guys could learn how to play bridge. Cribbage. Cribbage. Did he really? I'm oh, not boy. kidding you. For yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's next up. <laughs> Trivial pursuit, you know? Yep. It's <laughs> awesome. So, uh, so the last time I think you and I uh, saw each other in person, it was probably uh, a couple of years ago at the Leader Summer Summit for uh, the AOA volunteer meeting. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and one of the things that was really eye-opening to me about that in particular, and you probably don't remember this, but, um, but a, one of the, one of our, uh, one of the people there, I'll just broadly state that who I actually respect a lot. Um, and in terms of intersectionality probably stands, um, with more privilege than I would have to say some of the things that he may have said to you. And I was, and I was surprised and I can't remember the entire conversation, but what I was surprised by was, uh, how, immediately, uh, like he gave me a pass and I think he gave me a pass maybe because he knows me well, but, but he was pretty hard. I don't know if it was you in particular, but if it was women, do you recall that conversation? You may not. That's good if you don't, but, but, but I think that the gist of the conversation was, was sort of women in the profession. And, um, and then I think, I think it was also related to scope in some degree and, um, but I have one or two people in my mind, yeah. I've had a number of conversations with a number of people over the years that have stood out. So, yeah, well, no, that's that. So that's, that was, it was shocking to me because I, um, you know, for whatever privilege I may have, uh, I, I guess I, I don't have the, probably the pri- privilege that I have would be that I don't have to think about like, um, you know, if, if I work hard in the profession and I work hard for the profession, then I don't know, I, I guess I've never had to worry, like, is somebody going to think I'm, I'm uh, not going to contribute in the, right. Or just uh, assume that I wouldn't contribute. And that was to me, I was like, Oh, whoa, whoa. Like, like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, <laughs> like she's just, she's got a Harvard <laughs> master of public health. Like she, she cares about the profession and she is moving toward it. I was like, and it, and it was really striking to me, I guess, is my point. And I was like, I'm never going to have an Ivy League degree. I'm pretty sure you're not going to have an Ivy League degree. And uh, so then, it, then um, I guess my point is, is that that was really striking to me. And, um, and you said just now that, that you've had some conversations like that. Mm-hmm. Um, does it detract from, from your, uh, does, it, does it ignite your fire? Or does it detract from your, your desire to kind of, be involved? What, how does that impact you? Do you remember what comment they made? Like, well, I've had, cause I mean, I've had comments. It's very vague. I mean, in my mind, it's very vague. I was just, I recall that it was, I was shocking to me. Mm. I mean, right. a lot of the comments that I have, that people have made, not necessarily directed um, at me. And it wasn't, it was a generality. Yeah. It's not usually directed at me specifically because most of the conversations that I'm engaged in, I mean, certainly, I mean, the person that we were talking to didn't necessarily know me, but we were at a an AOA volunteer meeting. You could venture to guess that I was involved in the profession. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, you know, they probably shouldn't make a derogatory comment about, you know, female OD AOA volunteers, but 
Um, you know, a lot of the comments that I hear people make about female ODs is usually about um, the propensity for female ODs to go into the profession and then take a step back because they want to have babies. And then, you know, it's really just a part-time career choice. And I've heard those types of comments made more and more because um, one of the projects that I'm working on that I was on a, a panel discussion for women in optometry uh, at this past academy. We haven't published the results yet, but we, um, a faculty member, a few faculty members at NECO and I, um, but one of my co-investigators, Dr. Stacy Lyons and I worked, we teamed up with Jobson um, to do a survey. <clears throat> they do sort of their yearly income survey. Um, and we wanted to look at um, income mm -hmm. and to see if there's a, a wage gap, a gender wage gap. And we hear that talked about a lot mm -hmm. and that's talked about in multiple professions. But when we look at our profession, you know, the data is not really great and it's all survey based. And, you know, even the survey that we did, it's, um, you know, it's people just sort of self-select into to doing it, but you have to start somewhere. But what we really wanted to do was trying to compare apples to apples. Yes. Take the aggregate data. Yes. It's so mixed and it doesn't tell the proper story. And I'm sure you know this. When you are looking at aggregate data, you're not comparing apples to apples. You're comparing different modes of practice, different years of experience, whether you're employed or an owner, um, different geographic distributions. And so the, the, the data is so muddled that you're not telling the appropriate story. And that bothers me as a researcher because it's not factual. And you know, I, I want to manipulate the data to tell a story that may be advantageous to one group of individuals that I happen to be a part of just because it's advantageous, but not true. Interesting. So, the, so here's here's the thing. I I um I listened to an episode of a podcast when this was very a very hot topic in the profession. I would say, like a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, <clears throat> before all the other hot topics, right? That that we're onto now, and that is exactly what I thought. I I thought, look, if it's the case that Diane Russo owns a practice, um and sees patients exactly in the same town as Chris Wolf and sees patients exactly the same, you know, his, the way you choose to practice is exactly like mine. And I make more than you make garbage, right? Complete garbage. Like that should not happen. But that is not, I mean, that, that can't be a reality. Like I, I probably, you know, there's, I, I, because I choose to, to practice and see patients a certain number of days a week and I do other stuff on the other side, like, then I would assume that a, you know, a female in my town that owns her practice that's seeing patients five days a week, probably making a lot more money than I am. Because if, if she's billing appropriately, if she's seeing disease patients, if she's, you know, so, um, so it, I love that you got onto that idea because it is not explored and it's not talked about. It's, it's like, oh, wage gap, here you go, 23%. It's like, no, no. So then what do you do? How do you get to that number to really know, is it less? And, and what do you do with that information? It's more, yeah, it's more complicated. So <clears throat> I think that's what we are, we're wanting to start to tease out and to really, I mean, at least start to 
branch into two groups. Okay, well, let's start looking at employed ODs and um, owners, and then parse out male, female ODs and say, okay, is there a difference? And then parse out how many years have you been in practice? And then let's start looking at the difference in salaries. And so that we, we still haven't, um, we're still analyzing the data. Mm-hmm. What's your I, sense? What's your sense on the data? Um, so like if uh, you talk about employed, so let's say employed ODs. We haven't started digging into, oh. well, so what I can say preliminarily is that at least with the employed ODs, that there is um, less of a difference mm. in employed ODs between males and females uh, when they are first out. Uh, mm. it, for, so for new grads. And so we don't know if we're seeing that initially because now newer graduating female ODs are now more aware Mm -hmm. that they need to, like maybe they know that there is a a wage gap or they hear that there's a wage gap and they know that they need to um, negotiate, whereas maybe they uh, previously didn't no, like when I, I mean, when I, I didn't actually negotiate salaries for previous jobs that I went for and I was just like, well. You're going to negotiate the one you've got now? <laughs> no. Oh, it's time. It's time. Well, right. So, I mean, my, so I was not in actually a very good position to negotiate. Right. I quit my job before I had another one. <laughs> <laughs> and my perspective was, well, this is what I was getting paid. I don't have a job and I need one and I'm not getting paid less than what I was at with my previous job. So that seems pretty good to me. Sure. But, but that, you know, so do you think would, women do that more than men? Do you think women take that position more than men? Cause I would, that's sort of how, what I would do. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I think I'm good at understanding my value like in a healthcare system, but I'm not that good at negotiating, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so different now. I mean, this is, uh, so with the current position I'm at, I'm in now, uh, I'm, I'm at NECO almost seven years. I am so in such a different position now than I was seven years ago mm. um, that uh, I'm, I would also say I'm worth a whole lot more now than I was seven years ago. Yeah. So aside- you hear that, Howard? Are you listening? Yeah, right, right. Oh, Howard knows how much. I'm- <laughs> so, um, so I think aside from just uh, my level of understanding of actual negotiation and negotiation techniques, I think I understand a better. I have a better sense of what my worth is, quote unquote, where and and understanding what your negotiating position is. So I didn't really negotiate, quote unquote for my current position, because I didn't really have a very strong negotiating position going into my current position, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, I, I might have been positioned differently. So, so I think maybe new grads now um, have a, perhaps a better understanding. Things are being talked about more than they perhaps have been in the past. So that may be a little bit different. That's a, just a hypothesis. We are seeing, though, again, preliminarily among practice owners, that there is quite a bit of a difference. Women make more. Women make more? I'm asking. Oh, would, no, no. Oh, they vastly don't? Different, vastly huh. different among practice owners, male and female practice owners. Why, why do you think that is? That is the big question. Because I know, I like, maybe it's, 
But I, I, I think about the women practice owners that I engage with a lot. And I'm like, they're powerhouses. Like, their patients like them better than they small sample size. Right. 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 uh, And that's part of it's a small sample size. But also if we, um, if you look at, if I think, um, when we, uh, looked at practices that had similar gross revenue, Mm -hmm. there was also a difference in salary. Do you think they're, do you think they're, um, this this is going to probably sound sexist, but I'm you know. Look, I'd be look, curious I'm, to get your perspective. No, I'm it's asking. Foreign to me from a practice owner yeah. perspective. No, I mean, do you think that they are more nurturing, so they they pay their employees more? Do you think they that it comes back per, perhaps that they don't want to negotiate as much because so their so their cost of goods are higher? I mean, um, are they reinvesting into the practice? Right? Do they do they view their practice as a you know as a as a place that over time is going to be worth more if they reinvest more. So those would be the kind of questions that I would wonder about if, if is, is, it, is there something about, I know we're not supposed to say that, but is there something that women are different than men? Maybe I'm not supposed to say that, but if we assume that they are, and I believe that women are different than men in, in many better ways, right? And they, they are way better than us in many ways. Um, and m- one of those ways might be that they're, they're looking at their practices differently. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I mean, that's the only thing I, you could explain with the gross revenue. If their gross revenue is the same or similar, mm-hmm. it would have to be one of those things, right? Right. I mean, that's, these are some of the things that we were talking about because, I mean, and we don't have answers because we're mm-hmm. at this point, again, we're still analyzing the data. Um, and these were just some of the gross, very gross metrics sure, that we were sure. looking at. Um, but we're thinking, well, why, what could possibly be the reason for that? Could it um, be those that? are some of the things that some of the ideas that we were tossing around, like what are the, some of the business reasons that someone can make that they would end up themselves taking home less money, mm-hmm. but where would, how could they be distributing those funds amongst their employees or business that they themselves would then end up taking home less money? Yeah. Could it be that, I mean, other thing, if, I, if you're asking me for my opinion, it could also be that they're performing, they're providing services that cost more to provide, right? Like, like in general, maybe they're not providing, I, I, again, I have no idea. But, you know, when I would say, if I were looking at two practices and their exact gross, no matter who owned it, like this is completely agnostic to who owned it. In fact, the things I'm throwing out would be the things I would think about is like, how would you get that net, right? What you're paying yourself, how would you get that higher? It would be the things I said, whether it's a male or female, and then it would also be, all right. Well, am I am I generating, uh, you know, a million? We'll just say a million dollars. I'm generating a million dollars over here in revenue, but uh, I'm seeing maybe I'm seeing all managed vision care plans that uh, that requires me to to hit that million dollars. I've got to see such a high throughput, right? I've got to see so many patients. I have to have so much staff that all of a sudden, what I'm taking home is less as opposed to maybe I'm providing a ton of medical services and a ton of like additional high value services like scleral lenses, amniotic membranes, ocular surface disease management, you know, with procedure procedures in there, myopia management, like maybe I'm doing that, right? It doesn't matter if it's a male or female, but if I'm doing all those things, I don't have to see as many patients, right? So I don't have to have as much support staff and the high, there's, there's less, the patients that I am seeing, um, the cost to see those patients, even in cost of goods, tends to be lower. So 
those would be the thoughts I would have about if, if that actually helps you tease out those differences between males and females. Thank you for that. Cause we, one of our, also one of, one of our plans is as we're writing up the manuscript um, was to um, pick the brains of some of our business minded colleagues <laughs> as we write up our discussion. I'll let you know if I find some of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, cause again, part of the discussion is to, to tease out what some of the reasons could be, mm. because that was part of some, some of the glaring data that we had noticed in just sort of the preliminary analysis. Yeah, that's really interesting. None of this is, by the way, what I thought we were going to be talking about. But Me either. <laughs> but I'm glad we're talking about it, actually. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, a lot of different things I, I know I had mentioned to you. I'm like, I, these are the things I'm going to talk about, but I know it gets very scattered for me. No, I, I, I actually prefer not to have a list of things to talk about, actually. Mm-hmm. I think it makes the conversation a lot more fun for me and hopefully for the people who listen to it. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, so how, is, is that just that you, you picked up on that because you're research minded or do you think there actually is a public health, uh, kind of underlying public health theme to the difference in, in wage uh, and professional pathways for, between men and women? Yeah, one of the, so I, I mean, so I was a women's studies minor in college. Uh, so I've always had uh, an interest in sort of gender dynamics. So that sort of underlies a lot of personal interests. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I have realized as I've um, formally studied public health is that you can make most things about public health <laughs> if you're creative <laughs> enough. Uh, but certainly uh, workforce dynamics uh, have a role in public health when you talk about workforce demands and meeting the needs of patients. And when we talk about meeting the needs of our patients and thinking about um, <clears throat> when, when we talk about the needs of our patients and what our patients look like, and then what our doctors look like and mm. how we want our doctors to then also look like our patients uh, and reflect the, the demographic of our patients as well. So then we think about workforce projections and needs that also then relates to our patient needs. So I think, again, making stretching to think about how you can make many things public health if you get creative <laughs> enough. Not that I think workforce demands um, needs much creativity to make that um, public health relevant. Um, that is sort of how I, I view um, this topic as, as relevant to, to the realm of public health. Do you? So I, I had a conversation, we, we sort of uh, a, a little bit skirted around that idea of having doctors who look like their patients with, uh, when I talked to Adam Ramsey a couple oh, months ago about I this. I listened to that recently. Oh, great. Thanks. Did you give me a five-star review and, and write a review? I did not, but I <laughs> so, uh Anyway, the, um, the, so can you elaborate on that a little bit for me is like, what does the evidence tell us about um, patient populations who, you know, uh, and then, yeah, about how that impacts their ability to be adherent to prescription treatment plans, follow-up plans, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know, it, it is interesting. Um, there, there is, it, um, it can be mixed at times, hmm. some evidence. So certainly there is evidence that supports that patients um, 
want to be treated by doctors that look like them, that there is a more an increased likelihood that they will trust um, doctors that look like them hmm. because they um, have are it may be easier for them to build rapport um, uh, and have confidence in in what they're recommending. However, um, it is interesting that, and I, I'd have to fact check myself on this because some of this may also be anecdotal, that that's not always true. Um, there uh, are certainly instances where patients um, do have biases against doctors that look like them. Uh, is and that again, because they're sexist or racist or? Well, uh, I'm not... And again, this is where you'd have to fact check me because the what I've heard on this topic is mostly anecdotal. I don't know the the origin of the bias and, and what it's rooted in. But um, for example, um, one of the anecdotes um, that I have have heard is um, from one of my colleagues um, where. There were, I think it was one of the hospitals in Boston and one of the patient populations was, uh, I don't remember if it was predominantly Haitian and the hospital then made it a point to specifically hire a Haitian doctor so that they could care for that patient population. And what they found was that the patients did not want to see the Haitian doctor that they had hired that they wanted to see the white doctors um, because they felt that the white doctor was going to provide better care. That was sort of like in um, that what they were, I don't know if it was socialized or like culturally what they had, what they were um, was more acceptable to them that they did not want to see the Haitian doctor. And so they hadn't really asked the patients what they wanted. They assumed that because the patients were Haitian that they would want to see the Haitian doctor. And that is not actually what they wanted. And so, and again, this is totally anecdotal. Sure. Um, but so there, so that's not, you can't always make that assumption, but certainly some, some at times that is mixed. You can't make that assumption, but there is also evidence that patients do want to see patients that also um, look like them. Hmm. And, and is that racist or sexist or biased? The second, that latter part? Yes. Um, that that is what the patients want or that we assume that that's what they want? No, that that is what they want. Um, well, you know, I guess it depends. On what? Uh, I guess it depends on why. Do we know why? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know either. I mean, I, it's, it's, it starts to become an interesting question because I, it's, it's a good question. It gets at the root of it. You know, I yeah. think it depends on you're trying to get to the heart of, of why, you know, if you're uncomfortable seeing someone that doesn't look like you, I, I think if you sort of flip it the other way around, I think the question is, why is that? So why, why are you uncomfortable seeing someone that doesn't look like you? Is it that you have had past experiences that you have been discriminated against, that you mistrust someone that doesn't look like you, and now you have a preference for someone that does look like you because you feel that you would be more comfortable, that you would be less likely 
to be discriminated against by seeing someone that does look like you. So I think if you look at it from the other side, so I think it's a good, it's a great question. I think it just depends on the root yeah. of the, the issue. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if I'll use me as, a, as an example, because um, I talked about this on the podcast is I had a, a massive kidney stone about almost exactly a year ago. And um, my, uh, my urologist was, I, I was just referred to him by my primary care physician. And, um, and when I think about it, like had my primary care physician referred me to a female urologist, I probably wouldn't have cared that much. But now when I think about it, it's like, I don't know, I'll probably just, I probably would prefer to see a male urologist, right? He happened to be, um, he happened to be uh, from probably uh, South, um, South Asia, right? But, but like, that didn't matter to me. Like I couldn't, I didn't care about that at all. Um, I, but I, but I would say, yeah, I'd probably want to see a male urologist. And, but what's interesting is my wife doesn't want to see a female gynecologist, right? So like her OBGYNs have always been male. And I've said, well, why don't you, in fact, even one time when a female came in to deliver, who was a partner of, of the doctor that she was seeing, um, came in to deliver, uh, one of our kids, she was like, scheduled to do follow-ups with that other female doctor. And she just didn't want to anymore. And it wasn't, it, it's, not, it's a strong preference, I think, but it's a mild preference that she has, which is kind of interesting to me. If I was a woman, I'd probably want a, a woman OBGYN, right? Based on the experiences that I've had. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, certainly there's, there's sort of, um, you know, there's generalizable uh, preferences and then individual preferences. And I, I think um, any individual will have uh, variable preferences, but I think, you know, in the aggregate, and this is more when we talk about sort of more generalizable workforce um, demands, I think that's when we think about more, you know, the like the discussion that you had with um, Dr. Ramsey about, you know, the, the 13% promise, you know, the mm -hmm. fact that um, you know, in optometry schools, we only have 3% of, of black students, you know, like that is where we need to do better. Like, I, th I think, you know, no matter who you talk to, that needs to be improved because that's, we can do better there. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that is, um, no matter what anyone and any one patient's individual preferences, there's room for growth there. Mm -hmm. So no matter if an individual has a preference one way or another, I think we want to be able to improve the workforce, the, the geographic, the distribution of the workforce so that there is enough workforce distribution so that any one individual's preferences can be met. Mm -hmm. So that even though, you know, let's say your wife has a preference one way or another, or I have a preference one way or another, that I think the ideal that we're striving for is that an individual can have access, which of course, you know, that ideal, we're going to be striving for that forever, but so that an individual can have access um, to the provider that they're most comfortable with. I think yeah. that's the ideal to strive for. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely. I think, I mean, I don't think there's any disagreement. Uh, on that. And I think, I, I do think that some of the, and this is why I, I really like the, the approach that you're taking with a lot of it is that sometimes I think um, it, it can be overly simplified to try to say, you know, we need to have X, right? We need to have X. Like the reason that we might have, you know, a smaller proportion of X 
is much more complicated than 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 what we might be realizing. And you probably see this within the studies that you that you look at with within women, um, or in anything, right? So or in race or or whatever. So then then you start going down the path of and Adam and I don't think or Dr. Ramsey and I didn't probably even talk about this, but you know what you know. So there, that's why I really thought it was great. They're starting at at colleges where they know they're going to have a larger portion of people in that college mm-hmm. that. Um, are already high, high achieving and they're already succeeding and they just need to see the profession. And it's also why I love what uh, Adam does, even in his local community. You know, he has, he brings kids in from, from schools and gives them tours and show them what shows them. I mean, that you want to change, that's going to, how you're going to change things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, but then, then you start getting into like probably the conversation we had about women and, and money in optometry is, and, and payment is, that like, what are the nuances of what people are choosing all along the way? Like, you know, so I don't know. I mean, anyway, it's just, it's a lot more complicated, I think. And most people just like the headline. Yeah. Way more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. That so is one, you-, you know, the, that is one thing um, that I have learned and have a much greater appreciation for after studying public health. Cause so uh, when I study public health, they, uh, you have to st- choose a concentration and so mine was health policy, which, you know, probably makes sense after all the advocacy work that we did with um, AOA. And, um, and so uh, there's a lot of nuance. You, I mean, you know, with all advocacy work that you do with, um, you know, legislation, there's a lot of nuance. It's really complicated. And so there's a lot of layers. Nothing is straightforward. And um, whenever you're having conversations or messaging anything to the public, it's always way more complicated than you could ever yes. imagine that it is. And nuance is extremely uh, complicated to message to the public, to explain. Mm. It's really complicated to just fit in a one-liner. Um, and uh, I've, I've gained a much greater appreciation for that over time. How does that impact? So, so I, 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 you know, what do you think about that complexity within public health and the messaging that you've seen during COVID? Because I, I would say that that it's the same thing. It's like, it's like um, I, I think about how are we going to message this new piece of legislation, right? And we toil and we toil and we think, okay, well, if, if this person thinks about it, how are they going to pick that message apart? But the reality is, is that we're only probably scratching the surface because you know there are people in public health that have to know, okay. And we can use masking as an example, right? Like if they would have just, I'll tell you, I I keep saying this. If they would have just in March, as public health officials said, we think masking probably is going to be beneficial, Mm -hmm. but we also can't have people running all over the place, taking up the supply of masks. Mm -hmm. And so please, if you, if you need a mask and, and you feel like you need one, you make one at home, do this thing. We need to preserve these things for our public health, right? If they had done that, do you know what that would do to what we're dealing with now or what we were dealing with for the last, like, again, whether or not it makes a huge difference, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen a bunch on that, but I'll assume it makes all the difference in the world. The, the, the battle that we're having right now is because we just couldn't message it appropriately and treat people like adults. Oh. Do you agree with that or no? 
You don't have to agree with it. No, I agree. I, I'm like, <laughs> you know. Um, Are there other examples in public health where the same things happen and, and you're just like, and, and they use that in class and they're just like, don't do this. You know, <laughs> it's, oh God, you, you like pick the perfect example because, I mean, I know why they did it. Yeah. Because, I mean, <laughs> people hoarded toilet paper. Yes. Like, yes. It was going out of style. And I understand why they did it. I mean, they they did it because they wanted to preserve the supply for hospitals, but they it totally backfired. And uh, we are, you know, bearing the brunt of that still now. And uh, you, you know, you add on top of that the the culture of of the U.S., which was already going to be. I mean, even if they had come out and said that masks were beneficial from the very beginning, there were still going sure. to be a subset of the population that was always going to resist it just because of, you know, the ideals that the country was founded on that is just entrenched in who we are as a country that is never going to change. I mean, that is the fundamentals of the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so, and that, you know, it is the way it is. And, and so... Um, it's really hard to, it, it, it just, it comes with the territory. I mean, it's the same thing with, that we're going to deal with when, uh, when mm. um, a vaccine comes out, it's the same thing. And, you know, I get into this discussion with my husband a lot because he's a lawyer mm. and uh, we talk about this all the time. And we talk about like rights and freedoms and all of that. It's like, you have to, you have to take the, full package you know you have to take all the good with all the bad in order to have what you want to have to preserve the country um and so uh because of that um it makes it complicated to have to have messaged anything effectively so i agree with you that it's like if they had come out in a different way initially um the messaging probably could have been more effective, but, um, you know, it never, it, 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 um, there always would have been holdouts. There always would have been people that re would resist wearing masks. And, uh, if they would have told people early on that the masks were effective, I have no doubt that there would have been people that would have hoarded masks and then the hospitals wouldn't have had them. So, uh, it's like, pick your poison. You know, what would you have wanted early on? Would you have wanted the hospitals not to have them? Or would you have wanted to fight the battle that we're fighting now later on? You, you know, you flip the coin and you choose. And so they chose. And now, you know, we're fighting this later on. And, and pretty much it probably would have been unavoidable. People yeah. are going to choose. They're going to do what they're going to do no matter what. I, I don't see that in all likelihood that this would have been avoidable. What do you think? Well, yeah, so I think that's interesting too, and and it almost and, and it begs the question from me, and I have not really had heard a good answer. So locally, uh, you know, uh, we are much more of a red state, obviously, than Massachusetts and Nebraska, um, and and I think that comes. You know, there's a lot to that. There's a lot, just like any other things. There's nuance to that, but the. Um, what I see happening locally in Omaha and now even in, in Nebraska uh, as, a, as a whole is that, and nobody's answered this question, is, okay, well, we had a mass mandate in Omaha, 
right, in, in July. Our numbers were relatively low in July compared to what they are now. And I said in July, what I said was, if you, if you make a mask, mask mandate, uh, and it's on the podcast, so I said, if you make a mask mandate, what is going to happen in two months or three months when the numbers go up? It's a completely unfalsifiable proposition. It's either the masks, uh, either the masks work because we don't have a, a spike or a peak, or you, citizen, didn't wear the mask like you were supposed to, right? There's no other, other avenue. And that's exactly what we're seeing now is that numbers are going up. The mask mandate has held in place. In fact, it's getting more strict now. And the more strict it gets, it seems to be that the higher those numbers go. And so the answer from a public health standpoint, when we see you know, Nebraska Medicine coming out and talking about this, they're saying, well, people are encountering this because they're just having all these gatherings in their homes and in their backyards and you know, this kind of stuff. And, and I think it's like, well, could it be the case? How would we even know if masks just aren't quite as effective as we think they are, right? Like maybe they are effective, but we get to pretend right now in my practice, I get to pretend, and I use the word pretend purposefully, that if I have a mask on and my entire staff has a mask on and every single patient has a mask on, that I'm actually less likely to get infected from a patient or vice versa when I'm sitting at a slit lamp one foot away from them for a minute than I am if I'm outside five feet from somebody else with no mask on, right? I get to pretend that that's true and I'm just not convinced it is, right? I like, I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm completely like accepting, not because I don't think I will get sick. I actually think I'm going to get sick. And I, not because I don't think I could get sick really bad. I think I actually could, right? But I'm just accepting that that's kind of the nature of life a little bit. And I, and, but, but I get to pretend like that mask, that that patient could have never gotten infected from me and I could have never gotten infected from them. Because when I go to the hospital and they find out, oh, we, were, we had a backyard get together around our fire pit and we were within five feet of our neighbors and that must have been where, where I got sick, right? Like, that this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And, but that's the game we get to play. Yeah. It's, um, it's not, uh, you know, the thing is there's still a lot that they don't understand. And, um, the distancing, you know, I talk about this with one of my colleagues, Dr. Gary Chu a lot, um, often because, and he and I were just, just saying this maybe like last week when we talked, you know, the distancing, the six feet distancing, like that came from like the most recent SARS epidemic that um, we're, that we learned from. And, and, you know, the next epidemic or pandemic that we have, hopefully not another pandemic, but um, it will probably be another maybe nine feet, you know? So mm. we learn from each, um, each outbreak. And so we don't know that the six feet is like that magic number. And so, um, and, uh, so there, there isn't really knowing that that six feet is, is really protective and the masks aren't foolproof and it, you know, depends on what mask you're wearing and how old the mask is. And is it, how long have you been wearing it? And is it full of condensation? So there's all these X factors that, uh, affect the efficacy, um, and so we don't really know when people are contracting it or where. And, you know, we've been dealing with this um, 
as these types of questions as well. So I think no matter where you are, what state you're in, or if there's a mask mandate and whatnot, everyone's expecting the cases to go up as it gets cold because people are going to be spending more and more time indoors. And, you know, whether you're masked or not, the reality is people are not going to be masked fully indoors, whether you're, you know, and is everyone going to be spending time only amongst their immediate family indoors? No, you're going to be with extended family. You're going to be with friends. Even if you're in a restaurant, you know, there germs move around, yep. you know, there is, there is some amount of airborne spread. Uh, if that is evidence of that is still somewhat mixed, even though, you know, there's is that, in, is that, do you, is that, sorry to interrupt, but is that because of droplets are so small or it's actually airborne? Yeah. So there's the respiratory droplets that is a, you know, clearer cut, but there is a mixed, there is mixed, um, discussion and evidence about actual airborne spread that is not the respiratory droplets, but they do find it sort of in air ducts that um, there's uh, more discussion about how, how much of it is actually spread through airborne and not just the, the respiratory droplets that you would get if you're within you know the six feet of someone. Mm. So there's still a lot that is not totally understood. And so because it's sort of to speak to what you're exactly saying that just because there's a mask mandate in place that it's not foolproof. Right. And, and we know that. And so I think that's why the public health officials continue to just reinforce. It's like, well, control what you know you can control because there's so many X factors that we know we can't control. So it's like, we know that you can put a mask, the mask on your face. We know you can control how far your body is from another human. We know you can control. Some people can. I, you, you don't have eight kids that can't well, control yes. <laughs> other people. Yes, kids what are, are a whole different story. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly. I mean, my 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 brother, I he has two kids as well, and so I. Oh yeah. I, <laughs> certainly feel for anyone with children right now. But so, so do you think they reinforce those behaviors um, because there is so much that is out of our control? Is there, is there an approach to public health then even, even as we're having this conversation where, you know, in my opinion, you know, in Nebraska, a mandate is probably not the best thing, right? Like, like again, uh, and I, and I had this conversation with somebody that was, it was illuminating to me recently that, you know, my perspective is just tell us, like, show me the evidence, like, show me why it's important. Tell me the same things that you're saying right now. Tell me like, really, you should do all these things that are, we're talking about in the mandate, but like, just don't make it a mandate. Like, just inform me. Like, I understand that there are risky behaviors that I could do any day um, that aren't mandatory for me not to do them, right? They're not illegal, but I don't do them. And so, so like, and I don't do them because it's not a, it's not something that I want to engage in because I understand the risk. So why, from a public health standpoint, is there consideration where you can say, look, we can, we can mandate all we want, but maybe the better option is to, you know, educate people as much, as best we can, just like if we were mandating something, but just educate them on, on the stuff that you and I are talking about. Uh, so optimistic, Chris. 
Well, that's ex- that's exactly <laughs> what the person I said the other day was. They said they said some people, Chris, just need to be told what to do. And I thought, whoa. It's um. So I think. Um. I wouldn't, so I certainly wouldn't uh, probably put it that way, uh, especially because no one likes to be told what to do. As And when you put it that way, uh, like my spite sensor goes up. <laughs> like if you immediately tell anybody, like, just do it. Wear uh, the effing mask. Yeah. Oh, it's like, oh, that's like, the worst. like, no, even if like I philosophically agree with you i'm immediately <laughs> gonna be like nope just because you told me like i can't do it now like i i do it you know so there's got to be a lot of that right like so that yeah, could so be just part like, of on what principle as soon as you tell me i have to do it you know there are people that are going to resist and and that's what you want to avoid and so you sort of want to appeal to people to people's better nature and so i i I I mean I agree with the wearing of the masks and and there's this the this the science behind it um and and even if it's not you know 100% there is evidence behind it the masks do work and to whatever extent that they do work it is safer to wear the mask than not to wear it and so um, it's just that that mandate piece that gets people, and and it's unfortunate that that's the piece that sort of divides us. Mm. And um, you know, I, yeah. So it, what's the better approach then? I guess you know because you know that I guess it's probably my my just my worldview of like tell people what's good, tell people what what they should be doing based on the evidence of what you're seeing, and then let them decide what they. Now I understand that there's other people that they could infect and et cetera, et cetera, that don't have a choice in that. But um, I don't know. I, I just tend to see, and maybe it's optimistic. I just tend to see that, you know, so I guess there's those two dichotomies and how do you address that in an effective way from a public health standpoint? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the challenge. I mean, this is the challenge to living here in the U S right. I mean, and this is the challenge to being, uh, to trying to implement any type of public health, um, initiative because public health by its nature requires collective action. And uh, by its nature, our culture in the U.S. is individualistic. And so it, uh, it bumps up against our individualistic nature to act collectively, but that's the challenge with the masks. In order for the masks to work, mm-hmm. effectively, you need really that collective action. You need everyone or you know the vast majority of people to be wearing their masks. And so it's that's the major challenge. You know, how do you get everyone on board and appeal to everyone's better nature? without making them how, how do you like ask really nicely but then when someone says no ask even nicer you know it's just i don't have an answer i mean yeah. and the answer that some states have implemented is the mandate but that's i mean that's that's the challenge and there yeah. there is no one size fits all there's no great answer and that's why the states have you know all handled it differently some have chosen to implement the mandate some have chosen not to and that's why we're having such 
a heterogeneous response. And that's why we have all different COVID rates all across the country because the response has been so varied. Yeah. How do we get out of this? Oh, well, time and a vaccine. I mean, but even that is a gross oversimplification because again, even if we have a vaccine, which it looks like uh, we may, um, then it has to be manufactured. It has to be distributed and people have to take it. Mm -hmm. And vaccines work kind of in the same way that masks work, which means enough people have to take it that you know, we have herd immunity, which we've been fighting sort of the same battle on the vaccine front that we have on the mask front, where you have to have enough people that take it um, for that collective action. Are you um, going to take it? Yeah. If Fauci, it right away, right if away. He takes it. I'll take it. If Fauci does. Mm -hmm. Really? Why Fauci? Because I trust Fauci. So that's very interesting to me. So um, what if, what if there was another Fauci? I don't know that there is, but what is another Fauci that says, cause you know, do you, if you, have you really, so HIV and AIDS has always been fascinating to me. And, mm -hmm. um, so I, I have a, a lecture on it that, um, has been chosen twice. In fact, I get to do it tomorrow, uh, for South Carolina and, um, and, when you look at what has happened, what happened with HIV and AIDS, you know, they rushed through AZT. They, they put through a trial and there was like 19 people that, um, first of all, they, they didn't let them take anything else. So they couldn't get treated for other things like um, Bactrim uh, for their nemocystic pneumonia. So they put them all in this trial. They couldn't have any other treatments that they knew were helpful to those pa patients. And they gave, you know, 19 of them AZT, 19 of them nothing right? Or placebo. And, and it was like, just radically different. Like these people all died. These people did okay. And so they like rushed it through. Mm -hmm. Right. And then they found out later on that they shouldn't have rushed it through. Uh, it was, it wasn't probably the right dose. It wasn't, it wasn't that of much of effective treatment and et cetera, et cetera. So I look at that and I think, and who, well, um, I won't blame Fauci for either, but Fauci does happen to be a common denominator in that. And, um, and, and I look at that, I'm like, well, we, I mean, this vaccination was rushed through. So what if there's another guy that, you know, other people would say, this guy's pretty reasonable. He understands infectious disease, not Chris Wolf, but he understands infectious disease. And I, I think what he's saying makes sense. So I don't know, maybe I'll wait. Like, is that the right decision? Cause you trust Fauci. What if I trust somebody else? And, and then, but you don't trust that guy. And, and so now we're at this impasse where it's become like masks. Right? I think that, that there's very close to that. Patients on the left and patients on the right tell me they're not going to take the vaccine because of Trump wants it or people, or because Fauci wants it. It's like, mm -hmm. is it yeah, a bigger problem? I mean, that's why I said, even when, even if, and when a vaccine comes out, this is not going to be over, but um, have we set a precedent for, um, for the next pandemic or for even just the next like viral respiratory disease that's novel? I mean, I mean, I don't know. This, I guess I'm sort of way, I mean, maybe not off topic, but we've really set a precedent in my opinion. Mm -hmm. 
to do this exact same thing again? Um, in what way? Well, I mean, I mean, let's say you have an, uh, I mean, if you go back to look at SARS and um, was it, what was the uh, M1? H1N1? Uh, no, no. Yeah. Well, you look at any of them. SARS and was it MERS? Mm, I think so. Yeah. And, and so like, had we done, had, have, if one of those things come back, right, or, or like a new thing comes like, you know, SARS-CoV-3, right, then um, are we going to do the same thing? Even if it may not be necessary, where we track, we test asymptomatic patients, we do, like, that seems to me like, could we have set a precedence from a public health standpoint that is going to follow us forever? Um, perhaps I think, um, can we afford that? Can we actually like do that long-term? I think, uh, we, since we have gone through this, I mean, we're still going through it, but we will have learned in, in the postmortem of this, (laughs) we will have learned a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, there will be a copious amount of studies that come out of this. Um, and my hope and I, uh, my assumption, that's a, I think a decent assumption is that we will have learned a lot, um, coming out of this and that we will be then much better prepared. I mean, certainly depending on this was a novel virus that they weren't prepared for because they didn't understand it, um, that posed, you know, unique challenges. But I think as far as handling the pandemic and the contact tracing and all of that, I think my hope is that we'd be much better prepared to handle that moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the the piece that made this particularly unique than in the past is um, how much more technology we have now than we've had in the past and how much more access to information and misinformation we have access to. Yeah. And uh, that is much more unique. And um, I think that's made things better, but also a lot worse. Well, I think it's because, you know, a lot of people, uh, and I'm skeptical every single thing I read, you know, it's, it's about, Mm-hmm. You know, in my opinion, it's not even so much about whether I'm right or left or libertarian or, you know, liberal, right, or progressive. It's more about, like, um, clicking, right? Like, it's more about, yeah. I'm going to present you a headline right. that you're going to click on. And, right. and if I read into the entire article, I'll probably get the entire story and I'll get it accurately. Mm-hmm. But that headline is going to be catered to... Diane Russo's political beliefs, but that same company might actually have one that's going to cater to my beliefs. And they actually know if they present it differently, which one, and they're going to present me one and present you one. And then we both get a click on it. So we don't really have it. And so then, then I just, then it leads to me to just not trust anything. So then I'm searching for like, well, what do I trust and who do I trust and how do I know who I can trust? And I think, I think that's really a huge problem. Yeah, it's scary. I think also even the scientific journals right now are moving. I mean, they're not going through the peer reviewed process. They're putting things out 
quickly. And, mm-hmm. you know, they'll say that this is, I don't know, the disclaimer that they're giving you, but it's not peer reviewed. It's like a head right. of the process. And so yes. it'll be even more interesting to see the postmortem of all this when everything really has been thoroughly vetted to see what the results are and what the, the journals say and what the results are. Um, because everyone, all the journals that, you know, we would normally go to, New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, like they're just rushing to get things out as quickly as possible to share the information as quickly as possible that it's not being as thoroughly vetted as it normally would be. So they'll put something out and then they have to retract it or correct it. And so um, it's hard to keep up, but it's also, you know, puts that question mark on, you know, is this the most reliable information? Is it all correct? Because it hasn't gone through the rigors of the peer review process that it normally would. Um, and so that is also uh, a little bit scary because the, the, normal, the, the normal scholarly journals that we would go to, even, mm. even that is not as rigorous as it normally would be. And it's understandable because they, you know, they're trying to keep up with and churn out the information that they have as they are receiving it. So, you know, this is, it's some crazy times that we're living in, but it's, it's scarier when you think about how re- reliant we are on, on, you know, the sources of our information and how unreliable that really is nowadays. I'm going to leave it at that, Diane. Yeah. I'm going to be respectful <laughs> of your time. That uplifting point. <laughs> no, this is a this is a super fun conversation. I'm I'm really glad we had it, and I I I'll uh, I got to we got to do this more often. I got to yeah, just uh, great to catch up. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. Mm-hmm.